Thank you, Rich. Kelsey. Take your copy of God's Word, if you would, and join me in Joel, starting at chapter 2. Maybe you stuck your ribbon in your Bible so you wouldn't have to search the pages of the latter sections of the Old Testament and find it. But we'll take a moment to let you get to it, find Daniel and Hosea, and keep going a little bit farther toward the middle of the book. Come to Joel, and we'll be there together. While you're still finding it, let me just tell you that Oftentimes when I preach a funeral, I'll open my sermon with words that come from the preacher in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2, where he wrote, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And oftentimes I'll say and kind of connect the dots there that in other words, hey, it's better to go to a funeral than a birthday party because at a funeral you're forced to look at eternity in light of what's going on and what's happened. And oftentimes, the Lord in His kindness will use that moment in that situation to awaken you um, toward either revival or a renewed sense of His real presence in your life. I share that because there are a couple of graces associated with funerals. And I don't want... uh, people to miss them when I'm in the midst of those times. You know, I've shared one of you, one of them, but another is just that the the hope that a believer has uh, when the gospel is fully on display with the hope that people are enjoying and looking forward to, that this is not the end. Um, And most importantly is the, the grace that God brings about when the gravity and severity of that situation, when people are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that brings a certain grace um, that the Lord uses in His kindness to wake us up. There's a connection from what I'm telling you to Joel chapter 2. Last week we started studying uh, this small book of Joel. Only three chapters in its length. It contains a powerful, powerful message. And as we saw last week, The book opened up with the prophet Joel relaying the word of the Lord about the coming and the very near day of the Lord. It was no soft message, nor was it a message whose relevance was limited to its original hearers. Joel capitalized on a life-altering heaviness that the people had just experienced. The devastating swarm of locusts had come in and destroyed everything in its path. You see that um, starting in chapter 1, looking at verse 4, as by way of review, he wrote, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. As the destruction of everything, as if the destruction of everything in the path of this swarm of locusts wasn't bad enough, Joel went on to then credit 
the swarm of locusts to God and to make sure that the people saw that the connection between the locust and God's judgment was a judgment of sin. So he, he wasn't content with saying, my goodness, what a big nasty swarm of locusts. He was quite content to say, as he did in verse 15 of chapter 1, that this is by the hand of God. Notice what he says in verse 15. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Joel had warned the people not to waste this crisis. This crisis was by the hand of God for a certain reason. And with that reason, he's calling the people to wake up, lament, be ashamed, put on sackcloth, wail. We saw all those things last week. And then he called them, consecrate a fast and call a solemn assembly. In a word, he's given them this, repent, repent, repent. Your sin is killing you. Repent. Listen, God is holy. He can neither look upon nor tolerate sin, especially among His chosen people. Peter will write later in the New Testament um, specific words to this that I'm alluding to, but judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And judgment had come to the people of Israel with a vengeance. Joel led the way in crying out to the Lord in the latter part of chapter 1 in verse 19 where he says, To you, O Lord, I call. He had called the priest to call for a solemn assembly. He had called the priest to wail, but it's the prophet who stands before the Lord and calls out to the Lord and says, To you, O Lord, I call. For fire, and then he reviews what had just happened. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all of the trees of the field. Even the beast of the field pant for you because the waters, the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Again, as if one thing wasn't bad enough, we see the, the unfolding of more things here. So as, as if judgment of the locust was not bad enough or severe enough, God had obviously also brought about famine and drought. Will it get the attention of the people? Maybe more importantly, will it get ours? And by God's grace, it will. Would you allow me to stop and before we read into chapter 2, let's just go to the Lord in prayer in light of our heart's desire to walk humbly before Him in holiness and righteousness, the righteousness provided not by our ability to do so, but being hidden in Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we have sung and prayed before You and read from Your Scriptures thus far, We are humbled by the heaviness of the message of Joel and the call to repent. Lord, of things that even at this very second we may be unaware of in our own hearts, would you graciously reveal those things that are causing an, a separation in our intimacy, but also that are causing us to 
live the life that you have made abundantly available to us through Jesus. And we do not want um, there to ever be asked the question, um, uh, where is your God? (laughs) So Lord, would you cause the um, desire to be planted deeply in us to walk in holiness before you? Would you continue to shovel upon grace upon grace to us that which grants us repentance? Or we desire this. I desire, Lord, very much your help in making this passage clear. And Lord, that you would write the words of this passage on our hearts that we might walk in them by your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 2 of Joel. This morning we're going to look at this from verses 1 through 17. I've kind of um, shrunk the breadth, of, uh, the breadth of what we're going to look at. But this, the whole chapter is divided into obvious parts. The first two that we're going to look at are clear in and of themselves. But I wanted to give you two handles by which you could hold on to this and be reminded of what they say even after we close the covers of our Bible. The first section handle for that is judgment. The second handle for, or the handle for the second part is return. Judgment, return. Both of these words come directly out of the passage. The first one, judgment. Section 1, verses 1 through 11. You'll notice as we begin that this section, verses 1 through 11, are bookended by the phrase, the day of the Lord. You'll see it in verse 1. You'll also see it in verse 2. Um, and here's, here's this warning again, verses 1. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, verse 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So it opens with a call to the general of the God's army, this, this whole chapter. It opens to a call of God's, the general of God's army, and he is called to blow a trumpet, sound the alarm. Notice what verse 1 begins in the opening words of this chapter. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. I was 19 years old when I participated as a student, and actually a student leader um, with a bunch of college students up in rural Appalachia. We were uh, spending our days leading little Bible studies in campgrounds and meeting folks within the community. And I don't recall exactly where it is we, were, we had been put up and stayed, but I, I do remember that long after our leader had gone to bed. The BSU is what we used to call it. The Baptist Student Union had gone to bed. We're in this dormitory in just what I would refer to as just the holler in the hills of Tennessee. I mean, we were deep in the sticks. And and, uh, we were sleeping in this dorm, which was right next to an old kind of framed church building like you'd see if you're riding your bicycle through Cades Cove, if you've been up there in, in the Smokies. And a few of us had kind of left our place where we should have been sleeping, snuck across this, this kind of pasture area and found this church. And I, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I, 
Actually, why am I telling you a story that I'm embarrassed to tell you about? But I'm, here's what happened. We, we, we shook the handle on the front door of this white church only to find that it's open. Which really wasn't an invitation for us to proceed in, but we took it as such. And we, we went into that thing. And this, this church had a rope hanging from the ceiling in the little foyer area of this church. Which is connected to a church bell, Right? And the more we looked at that rope, the more we thought, oh man, that'd be kind of funny to wake our friends up with the sound of that bell. So we were planning to pull the rope, ring the bell, cause them to wake up, and in the time before they came out to find us, go get back in our beds. That was the plan. And we pulled on that rope, and it went ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. And then we did what we said. We took off and found the back door to the dorm, jumped in our beds, and everybody's stirring and getting up and waking up. And what's going on? And we walked out there with them to learn that the church has a bell. And it was not any time later that the holler was filled with people from the community who have come. Emergency vehicles have come. And we have unbeknownst to us, blown a trumpet in Zion, whereby all peoples were gathered together. I had no idea that what that bell was signifying was there's a problem in the hills and everyone needs to gather here. I don't know why I tell you that. Other than to say, God has told the general of his army to not ring the bell of the church in the holler of East Tennessee, but to blow a trumpet and gather every one of the people of the nation together. And this was not because he needed the help of the nations. But in chapter 2, he's calling them all together because in this moment, in this time, he is going to judge the peoples. They're not being called to arms. They're being called to judgment. And it is going to be quite a judgment. We'll see what unfolds here in the rest of chapter 2. After he blows a trumpet in Zion, after he calls for a trumpet to be blown in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. And then he goes on to really put a microscope on what had taken place with these locusts. He describes his army that was used to weigh heavily upon his people. Notice what he says Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a, a day of clouds and thick darkness. My father was a honeybee keeper. And uh, it, at, upon his passing, Shannon and I were living in Chattanooga with the kids. And I said, you know, babe, I think I'd really like to have honeybees. I don't know a thing about honeybees other than my dad had bees, he had bees, I'd like to have bees. So I inquired with a beekeeper, hey, is it? Can I have honeybees? What, what does this mean? How does this happen? And he said, you can, but it's a little late for the season. And you need to wait until next year. How about I teach you what to do? And then throughout the year, you'll learn and then have bees next year. I said, 
Sounds like a great plan. I'm working in the back garden when all this is kind of coming to fruition and I had decided where the hive was going to be in the future and I had come in on a hot late spring day to a screened-in porch when all of a sudden the sky turned black and there's a humming like a helicopter over our backyard. And I looked out through the screen and a swarm of honeybees are flying in our yard or in, you know, in the proximity of our yard. And I said, honey, God has given me honeybees. And those bees, and what went from black to a little nucleus on a tree limb, then made this big old bundle of bees that that dude actually came and helped me get. And, and we kept those bees until I killed them a year later. But, but we, what, I, what I'm saying is those honeybees caused the night, the sky to turn dark. So you get this visual of what's going on. It's a day of darkness, a gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, they're spread upon the mountain, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. So he's describing what happened in chapter 1. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. So God had, God had been restoring his land and the people to the land and and that's what they had in front of them but behind is coming this swarm of locusts that's going to lay devastating uh, effects to this land their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. Listen to this. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27 says, The locusts are said to have no king, but all of them march in rank. And we're seeing that described here. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter their window, through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and awesome. Who can endure it? The answer to this rhetorical question is no one. No one that is apart from those who are hidden in Christ. And his righteousness. Now, whether Joel, in his human understanding at the time, when the Holy Spirit is leading him to write, and he's he's putting down in this prophecy what God is saying, whether he knew in his own human understanding at the time that the day of the Lord that he was describing, this this locust invasion, was actually pointing to the day of the Lord yet to come is unclear. But we today are not left in the dark. 
Jesus himself elaborated on that future event which will have uncanny similarities to what we just read. Now Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 verses 29 to 31 said these words that Matthew records. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of the Man, I'm sorry, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the earth. There is coming another trumpet blast whereby God's people will be called in. Those who are hidden in Christ will be called together. All from all of the nations will be called together in that time not to receive God's judgment, but to celebrate the fact that the judgment they deserved was lavished upon Jesus. But for those who did not believe and trust, it will be a day of awakening and judgment. And in that day, who can stand? Jesus' words in Matthew, spoken before He went to the cross to secure hope for the coming day of judgment for all who trust by Him in faith, make Joel's next words super encouraging. Look at verses 12 through 17 now of this next section. Yet even now. Don't you love the hinge verses of Scripture? We've just read of this devastating plague. We've just heard of the judgment that God brought about His people. Why? Why? Because it's better to go to a funeral than a birthday party. It's better that the Lord in His kindness would bring upon the heaviness of conviction to our sin so that we could be contrite and confess and avoid the judgment and that the judgment might be put upon His Son. But He says, yet even now, declares the Lord. Listen to what He says. Return to Me. With all of your heart. He's talking to his people, right? His children of Israel. So he's, he's not using language. Hey, I'd like to introduce myself to you. He's, he's talking to his adopted people. His chosen people. He says, return to me with all your heart. With fasting. With weeping. And with mourning. And then he says, and rend your hearts. And not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For He is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Another rhetorical question He throws out. He says this, And who knows? Whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. I'll stop just a second here. Repentance is not a tool for us to bend the will of the Lord. It's not as if when we rend our hearts and not our garments and we show utter uh, humble repentance before Him that we're forcing His hand. God is going to bring about in the lives of His people what is to the most of His glory and for the best and good of His people. 
We do not approach repentance as a magic wand to get up out of, of the heat of whatever it is that we put ourselves under by our sin and rebellion. I just throw that out there as an aside here. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering from the, for the Lord your God. And then he says it again, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Let's talk about this for just a moment. Yet, even now. I've addressed this already in, in calling this and referring to this as a hinge passage in this book. The heaviness of conviction has come. The heaviness of judgment has come. Even though it has come, God is willing to act upon His character. And we get to hold as His beloved, chosen, adopted children these precious words of hope and promise. Yet, even now. Do not assume, men and women, young men, young ladies, children, that your sin has taken you so far that it is too late to stop and be contrite and bow your heart before the Lord and confess sin before Him. Take a hold of the promise of yet, even now. Notice what he says. Yet, even now, return to me with all your heart. And notice how he describes this, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. What I want you to see is how God is calling his people in Joel chapter 2 and today to genuine repentance. What do I mean by that? He's calling them to a genuine repentance, which is actually a gracious gift of God that will result in them having godly sorrow over sin that is being committed against the holiness of God. In Psalm chapter 51, David says, Against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. Was it the only person that he had sinned against? Well, no. But primarily, and as of utmost importance, his sin, as all of our sins, is an affront to the holiness of God. Let me say a word about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Take note of this. Not, not that you write it down, but just, just hear what I'm saying for just saying godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 offered a great explanation between the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Here's, here's what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, so he wrote a letter to the Corinthians that blasted them on things that they needed to change. And now he's talking about it. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet, now I'm happy. 
Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. And then listen to what he says in verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow is a gift that's granted by God. Worldly sorrow is concerned with not being in trouble with people. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, is concerned with not being at odds with God. Worldly sorrow fears the embarrassment of exposure, whereas godly sorrow embraces the healing that comes as a result of exposure. Worldly sorrow is rooted in the fear of man. Godly sorrow is rooted in the fear of the Lord. So what does this look like? Well, think back with me to our passage in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, where he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Strange thing to say, don't you think? When one physical attribute and expression of biblical sorrow, especially in the Old Testament, would be to rend your garments and, and make a display of, of what's going on inside. Well, apparently the display is all that was happening in their day. And it was far from a heartfelt conviction over sin, but just going through the motions of, I'm so sorry, and then getting back to the sinful pattern. Rend your hearts and not your garments. We've been hanging some crown molding and some doing some trim work around some bookshelves that we've put in at the house that we're living in. And, and I, I have learned. I learned this years ago from a contractor that was in our house, but now it's firsthand practice. That caulk, white stuff that goes around the corners, caulk can cover a multitude of sins, Right? But at the end of the day, come look closely at my handiwork. At the end of the day, it's just covering up my lack of carpentry skills. Caulk hides, it doesn't fix the problem below the paint level. Looks good from a distance. Sin causes gaps in our life, relationships, hearts. And sin causes gaps that grow larger and larger with time. And simply going through the motions of rending your garments, going through the motion, I'm going to go to church three times this month. I'm going to put some money in the offering plate. That'll show God that I'm serious. Rending your garments is no fix. But it's a cover-up that will not fix you. Kelly Needham points out something that I thought was worth sharing and wrote, Repentance isn't primarily about what you're fleeing from, but whom you are fleeing to. What good is it to run from sin if you're running to your own resources? To whom then are we to run 
in repentance based on Joel chapter 2. We're to run to the God of second chances who acts toward His children in keeping with His character. Go back to our passage, the second part of verse 13, where it says, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. This is a direct quote from God Himself who spoke these words to Moses. Think about this. While God was originally giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, it took days. And the people at the bottom of the mountain, he's up on Mount Sinai, the people at the bottom of the mountain were waiting for his return. And when the wait became super long, they sinned gravely by worshiping a carved image that was carved by their own hands. When Moses arrived to see the people in their sin, in his anger, he breaks the tablets of stones upon which God had written the law. But God allowed Moses to return up the mountain, however, and in his kindness offered the people through Moses an intermediary. They are too afraid to come up the mountain, and they weren't even allowed to get there. But through Moses, God offered the people a second chance but not before offering an explanation of His name and His character with the same words that we see quoted here in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, He says in Joel, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Is God so gracious? And is God so merciful? And is God so slow to anger? Is He so abounding in steadfast love that He might turn and relent and leave a blessing behind for the people of Israel in Joel chapter 2? For us? This is precisely the rhetorical question that's asked in verse 14. And that question is followed by one more call for the trumpet to be blown. This time the call was not given to be, wasn't given out for enemies, but for the people to gather in humility. Notice what it says. Blow the trumpet, verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. This call is going out to all of the peoples. No emergency that they're in the midst of was not to be interrupted so as to miss out on this call. This is for all. It remains for every believer to heed this call. And notice, return to the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. With the people gathered, what would they do? The people would need an intermediary. They would need a go-between they would Just like Moses served as a go-between between God and the people at the bottom of the mountain, the people would still need that in this passage. Notice what it says. He's speaking now to the priest. 
and tells them, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach. If you'll look just for a moment before I close up to give you a hint at where we're headed in verse 18. The first words of the next section tip us off that God is not finished putting His patience and mercy and covenant love on full display for His people. We're going to look at that next week. Until then, I want to linger on this call to rend our hearts and not our garments. I would like to kind of respectfully and just kind of call upon your kindness to allow me to go back to my carpentry skills for just a moment. And through the lens of my lack of carpentry skills, invite you to look at your own hearts. Caulk does cover up a multitude of mess-ups. But it doesn't make my cuts any better. Sin is destructive. And more and more and more and more evidence is being given in our land, in our homes, in our churches. That sin has invaded our lifestyles as much as it has pagan folks who don't even have a testimony of the Lord. And I want you to be mindful that God is holy. And God is calling us to a uniquely different life than we lived before we were saved by grace. He's calling us to confess sin. One to another, as Bill said, but certainly before Him. Agreeing with Him about the things that we're involved in that are not bringing glory to His name. My challenge for us and my call to us is that we would not treat lightly the holiness of God. That we would not mess around with the things of this world and be entangled in them, but that we would shake off the sins which so easily entangle us so that we might run the race with endurance. That we would pray diligently, asking God in His kindness to reveal areas in our lives whereby we might be blind to our own sin. Why else were the locusts needed? Why else were the locusts needed to cause drunkards to see that their sensibilities had been lost? That the seekers of pleasure had grown so deeply into their pursuit of pleasure that they had left behind the holy aspirations of God. 
Why else would the tillers of the field need something so tragic to shake them in their boots whereby they would say, I have made a God of my work. And why else would such a tragedy have been needed that even the priest would be called to mourn? Because the church might be, have some people in it, but it was not filled doing what it was to be doing, which was offering an offering before the Lord. There was a spiritual famine in the church. There was a physical famine and drought among the people. And we as a people have run deeply into the counsel of the world and left behind the counsel of the Word. Which brings complex things to simple illustration and illumination is the word I meant to say. God is calling us to holiness. For we are strangers and exiles that live in a land, even a country, whereby we are being given over to the depravity and absence of our own minds. And we're following hard after the world. And I would call us church to ask upon the Lord's grace and kindness to lead us to repentance. So that our families would look uniquely different. Our marriages would be restored under the Lord. And that we as individuals would live for the glory of God. Turning away from our sin and turning toward Christ means that we have a God-given gracious willingness to turn away from ourselves. We have been given in Christ the means of righteousness. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. We do not need a swarm of locusts. But we are benefited from the attendance at places like funerals that jolt us out of the complacency that we've gotten used to to live and look like the world. God is kind to respond to our contrition with gracious forgiveness. God is kind to respond to our contrition with the willingness that in our weakness He is made to look strong. Take your failures, pass them to the Lord. Take your addictions, hand them to the Lord. And say, I cannot live this holy life on my own. And He is glad to say (laughs) that He never intended for us to do so. But that we might rest and rely upon Him to live in us so that the life we live can be to His glory. Forgive my ramble here at the end, but I'm brokenhearted over the state of our homes and our families. I'm brokenhearted over the state of our churches. I'm brokenhearted over our country, but our country is not the church. The church is that which is called to a life of holiness to impact our country. And I want our churches to look differently by the glory and grace of God. Why should outsiders say among the peoples, where's their God? 
God has gone nowhere, but we do a lot of running from Him toward our own flesh. Run from sin. Run toward righteousness. Rend your hearts, begging God for a godly sorrow that only He can grant that it might lead you to repentance and to holy walking before the Lord. This is the work of the Spirit that we surrender to, to His glory and our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the message of the locust. Thank You for this message from Joel chapter 2 of the day of the Lord. A day of the Lord that took place in the day of Joel. And a day of the Lord that Jesus, You said, yet awaits. And Lord, it is a day to come where You will call Your people to Yourself. May you find a bride who is ready to be called by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.